So let's jump into the message for today. And I want to begin with a question or really a scenario for you to think about. I want you to picture a man who's at work and uh, it's the middle of the afternoon. He decides to leave work a little early. He drives home and on the way home, he stops by a field that he's driven by a bunch of times and he goes out into the field and he cuts a bunch of wildflowers. He bunches them up, he drives home, and when his wife meets him at the door, he presents the flowers as a gift to her. And the question for you is, what's going on here? Why is he doing this? Why is he giving her this gift? Now, there's a few reasons you might be thinking of. Maybe they're newly married and he's just feeling romantic, right? Or maybe they've been married a long time and he still loves her and this is his way of showing his love for her. Maybe he's grateful for her. Maybe there's something she did this past week and he just wants to show his gratitude for that thing that she did. Maybe they've both been really busy lately. And they haven't gotten a chance to spend much time together. And so tonight, he cleared his schedule. He's going to cook a romantic dinner. And they're just going to spend time together. And it all starts with these flowers. Or maybe it's Valentine's Day. Or it's her birthday. Or it's their anniversary. It's a holiday. And maybe the flowers were not unexpected. He does it every year. right? But she still loves it every time He does it. It's still meaningful. But there's another reason he might have brought the flowers home. Maybe maybe you thought of this. He's in the doghouse. Uh, He said something last night that was not kind, and he's sorry. He's been absent lately. He's been working too much. He hasn't prioritized her, and he needs to apologize. Maybe he forgot their anniversary last week, and he needs to to make up for it. So so there's several reasons. There's at least three reasons, right, that he could bring these flowers home to his wife. It could be an impromptu gift to express his, his love and gratitude for her. It could be a gift to mark a holiday, or it could be a gift to say, I'm sorry. And this is the way that sacrifices worked in ancient Israel. You see, we're reading through the book of Leviticus, and if you're joining us for the first time today, you're thinking, what? Leviticus? Why are we doing that? Yeah, we're in Leviticus, and we're reading through, and in the beginning of the book, it describes five types of sacrifices that the Israelites could bring to God, but the word used most commonly for these are not sacrifices, but is the word for gift or offering. It's a gift that you're bringing to God. And the first three gifts are all about expressing your joy and your gratitude. They're about drawing near to God and saying to him, thank you for all you've done. And they had so much to be thankful for. Leviticus is the record of what God told the people of Israel at Mount Sinai just a few months after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And so they can bring one of these gifts, a burnt offering, a grain offering, or a fellowship offering, and we looked at those three last week, to show their gratitude and their joy and their appreciation of God. Now, a second reason they could bring one of these gifts would be to celebrate a holiday. 
There were regular holidays on Israel's calendar, and bringing these gifts was a big part of those holidays, and we're going to read about that later in Leviticus. But there's a third reason that you might bring a gift if you're an ancient Israelite. You might bring a sacrifice to God, and it's when you've made a mess, and you need to say you're sorry. So that's what we're going to read about today. And the instructions for the fourth gift and the fifth gift, they might surprise you in what they say or what they don't say. So let's look at that together. Um, It's Leviticus chapter 4. We're not going to put the verses on the screen or do any slides today because I'm just going to keep it super simple. So the easiest thing is if you have a Bible to read along, and I'll try to tell you where we are because I'm going to skip around uh, a fair amount. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen. Chapter 4, verse 1, here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. So let's pause there for a second. When anyone sins unintentionally, that word unintentionally is important because it can mean a number of things. It could mean that you made a mistake and you didn't try to, right? It could mean that you did something wrong and you weren't aware that it was wrong at the time. Or maybe you did something wrong and you knew it was wrong, but you just got caught up in it and you weren't really thinking about the consequences in the moment. So you tell a lie. And in the moment, it felt okay. But later, your conscience tells you it wasn't okay. It was, it was dishonest, right? Or you lose your temper. And pretty quickly, you realize, ugh, that was not good. I mean, it wasn't premeditated. I didn't want to lose. I didn't plan to lose my temper, but it was still not good, right? Or maybe it's just something you've been wrestling with your whole life. You're, you're realizing that the older I get and the more I reflect on who I am, I'm a really judgmental person. And I never thought I was, but I really am. And you see, these are instances where we become aware of ways that we've acted that have been destructive either to ourselves or to other people or to our relationship with God or even to His creation. So when anyone sins unintentionally, and then the word anyone is broken down into four groups. So verse 3, it says, If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defects as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. So if the anointed priest, and and that means the high priest, sins in this unintentional way, that brings guilt, not just on him, but on all the people that are following him. And and the word guilt there, um, probably a better word is the word stain. We, We use the word guilt in a legal sense for the most part today, but that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about a stain or something that pollutes, something that spreads even to the people that are following the high priest and are under the high priest. And so the instruction for him is to bring a sin offering to deal with this. Now, in your Bible, if you have an NIV translation, you'll notice a little mark or maybe a little A next to the word sin offering. And if you go down to the bottom of the page, uh, you'll see that it tells you this could be translated as purification offering. And that's actually a much better translation because that's what this gift is about. It's about cleaning up the stain. You can't undo the sin, but you can be cleaned of its stain. You can have the dirt 
scrubbed away. You can be washed or purified. And the way you do that is you bring this animal as a purification offering. And there's a bunch of instructions about how to do that. Now, this isn't just for the high priest. Next group, verse 13. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, when they realize their guilt and the sin they committed becomes known, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin or purification offering and present it before the tent of meeting. So, if the whole community sins in some way, there's a communal stain and the community needs to be purified and cleaned. Verse 22, when a leader sins unintentionally, so that would be like an elder or a tribal leader. And then verse 27, if any member of the community sins unintentionally. So any individual is covered by these instructions, whether you're the highest leader right? The high priest, a mid-level leader, or, or just a regular person. When you become aware that something you've done is wrong, here's how you deal with it as an individual or even as an entire community. And think about that communal piece for a second. You see, in the ancient world, there was a strong sense of communal identity Communal life that's shared together, and that means also communal responsibility. And they recognize that sometimes we even do things wrong as a community. There is communal sin. And we have to deal with that as a community. And so this ritual helped them acknowledge their communal sin, grieve over their communal sin, and even seek cleansing together from the stain that it caused. And don't you think we could use something like that in our culture today? I mean, are there not some issues, some communal sins, some corporate injustices, some corporate stains, that until we acknowledge them corporately, collectively, communally, we can't really deal with it. And now, this, this very backwards, you know, primitive, ancient, outdated book of Leviticus, it actually looks really relevant, doesn't it? Because they had practices, they had rituals that, if we're honest, we need, right? They had rituals that enabled them to say, hey, what we have done together, and it's complex and it's all interwoven, what we have done, it has stained us. It has stained this holy and sacred place where we meet with God. It has stained our mission in the world to embody a different way, to embody God's ordering of the world, to embody a world where where we live in right relationship with Him and right relationship with ourselves, with each other, and even with creation. And this, this ritual, this very tangible, physical thing that they would actually do together Right? It, it becomes so important. I mean, can you come to your wife and tell her that you're sorry for being a jerk last week? And can you do that without the flowers? Of course you can. But if you bring the flowers with you, right, does that not make it a whole lot more real? Does it not make it a whole lot more tangible? Do they not express your apology in ways that words by themselves don't? 
I mean, you bet they do. The ritual is significant. Now, you might be thinking, well, what if your sin is intentional? Meaning, what if it was deliberate, defiant? What if you don't have any regrets? What if you did what you did on purpose and you're not even owning up to it and you don't care? Well, Leviticus doesn't have an answer for that. (laughs) There's nothing you can do about it. There's not a ritual you can perform for that situation. So the book that comes right after Leviticus is called Numbers, and it often summarizes things in Leviticus. And so when it summarizes the purification offering, it says if you're an individual or a community that sinned unintentionally, bring this purification offering. Look at what it says right after that. This is Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord, and they must be cut off from the people of Israel. Because they have despised the Lord's word and they have broken his commands. They must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. Meaning, if you've done that, you're still carrying the responsibility and the stain of your sin. You're not bringing it to God. You're not asking him to carry it away for you. You're not asking him to clean you. You're not asking him to wash you or to purify you. And if you're not willing to do that, there's nothing that can be done for you. There's no cleansing ritual for you. And more importantly, your stain, your defiance, your rebellion, it's going to stain the entire community. So the text says in ancient Israel, People like that should be cut off from the community because this is a community of people and we are not perfect people and we are not people who don't have any stains, right? We have lots of stains, but we're a community of people who when we become aware of these stains, we bring them to God and we say, I didn't intend to hurt myself or to hurt others or to hurt God's creation or to hurt my relationship with him by what I did in the moment I didn't intend that but now I see that's what happened that's what I was doing and so I'm coming to you God to publicly ask you to clean me and restore me and purify me you see that's the heart of the purification offering now there's a fifth and final gift that you can bring to God, and you bring it in two specific instances of wrongdoing. You bring your purification offering, and you bring another offering in these two situations. And this gift is best called the reparation offering, and you'll see why in just a second. Sometimes it's called the guilt offering, but that's really too broad of a term. Um, And so let me read you these two situations. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, when anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things. Now stop there for a second. The Lord's holy things means all of the stuff that's associated with the tent of meaning. So the actual tent, that place that you come bring these things, the altars that are there, the furniture that is there, all the tools and equipments that the priest uses. This is God's home, and these things are his holy and sacred things. And so if you abuse them, or or you treat them without care, or you use them for your own purpose and your own self-advancement, 
then you have devalued these things. So that's the first situation. Second situation, chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them, or left in their care, or about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbor, or if they find lost property and they lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit. So, bunch of examples there. And now he's talking about other people, your neighbor. Not just your next door neighbor, but your next door neighbor, and just other people who are your neighbor, who are made in God's image. And if you abuse other people, or you treat them without care or dignity, or you use them for your own purposes and your own self-advancement, then you have devalued other people. And so if you specifically your sin in regards to either God's holy things or God's people, here's what you do. Chapter 6, verse 4. When they sin in any of these ways, and they realize their guilt... They must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution or reparation in full, add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day that they present their guilt or their reparation offering. And then there's details about what kind of animal to bring for the reparation offering. And then verse 7, In this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. So, in the case of your neighbor, if you steal something from them, you're devaluing them And not only is that a sin against them, it's a sin against God, right? And so you deal with it by bringing this offering, and that means you're acknowledging that what you've done is wrong, and then you make restitution. You have to return back to them whatever you stole, or whatever value you took, or whatever value you incurred, and then you add 20%, right? And then you offer the animal on the altar, And now you can see why scholars call this the reparation offering. Because you don't just need to be purified and cleaned of your sin and the stain of your sin. You have to make amends. You have to make reparation. And some people refer to this as like the small claims court of ancient Israel because this becomes the heart of their ethical code. And later, it'll say that these instructions apply to people who are native-born Israelites and to foreigners. It applies to immigrants. It applies to people of other ethnicities and other cultures, which gives them value, right? It says you are just as important. You're all equal. You all have dignity and worth. Everyone is the same. This is not like Egypt, where there were masters and slaves. If you have offended someone else, If you have abused or misused or taken advantage or lied to them, it doesn't matter what their status is and what your status is. They are made in the image of God and you sinned against God and sinning against them. And so you need to be made clean, but you also have to make reparation. Now, there are a bunch of other instructions in these chapters and 
Uh, we don't have time today to get into all of those. Um, most of them are about details that are strange to us, but don't forget, Leviticus is all about the details. Over and over and over, the details matter. The details are important. But um, I want to end by asking two big questions that we still need to address about these gifts, these sacrifices, and this whole system. Question number one, why does God use such a barbaric system that involves the brutal and systematic slaughter of countless animals? I know you've been wondering that. As much as I keep using the word gift and I compare it to flowers, right? These are animals that are being slaughtered. And so this is a really important question and it's a big question and for that reason, I'm going to address it in the podcast for this week. I've been doing a podcast every week where we talk about some of the extra stuff that we weren't able to get to on Sundays. And so this is such a really important question. I want to give it plenty of time. And I hope you'll listen to it because I think it will actually challenge all of us in a unique and special way that we haven't ever thought of before. So we're, we're releasing those podcasts um, on our website, uh, usually on Wednesday mornings or Wednesday afternoons. Um, so uh, check our website or wherever you get our podcasts and listen to that um, on Wednesday. So I'll address question one then. Here's question two. Maybe you've been wondering this. Does God need a blood sacrifice to forgive sin? And this is, this is an important question because it seems like the answer is yes. I mean, in Leviticus, the only way to deal with your sin is by killing an animal. It's by blood sacrifice. So it feels like this is what God is requiring. And if that's what God needs or that's what God requires, doesn't that feel a bit problematic? I mean, if one of my kids lies to me or hits one of the other kids or steals candy from the store, and as a parent, I sit them down and I say, you know, the only way for us to deal with this and for you to make this right is you're going to have to kill the pet dog and splatter his blood all around your room, right? I mean, if, I mean, if that's what I required, that would be deeply problematic. Even recognizing we live in a different culture than the ancient Israelites, right? This still feels problematic and it feels punitive. It feels like someone has to be punished, For what I've done, someone has to be killed, right? It's either you or the pet dog. You get to pick, right? It's either you or the animal. It feels like the act of killing this animal is done to satisfy some sort of punishment that is required. And maybe that's the impression you're getting, or maybe that's what you've been taught in the past. And so let me offer a few thoughts in response to this question. Does God need blood sacrifice to forgive sin. Three thoughts, and maybe you might write these down because I think they're really important. First, number one, sacrifices were, were about cleansing and restoration, not punishment and appeasement. Sacrifices were about cleansing and restoration, not punishment and appeasement. Now, in our modern Western legally minded culture, we tend to think about sin and wrongdoing through the lens of law-breaking and punishment. That's just how we think about it. But that was not the perspective of ancient Hebrews, and it's not the perspective of Leviticus. They believed that sin left a stain on you, 
And the stain polluted you from the inside out. And it even polluted our communities. And it even polluted the land itself. And the issue is that we need to be cleaned. And we need to be made whole again. In fact, there's a really important Hebrew word. It's the word keper. That, that's the form of the verb that's, that's used throughout this passage. And it's commonly translated to make atonement. To make atonement. But even that can be misleading because most of the time in our language and our thinking, we think of atonement in legal terms. As if God needs to be satisfied. We are separated from him. He is mad at us. And so we need to slaughter and punish this animal in order to appease his anger. And and granted, there are a few passages in the Bible that, that use some of that imagery or some of that wording. But the Hebrew word keper is rarely used in that way. Here's how it's usually used. It means to cover over something. So to cover over something. So the very first time it's used in the book of Genesis, in the whole Bible, Noah makes an ark out of wood and then he compares it with tar in order to seal the wood and make it waterproof. It's to cover over something. Or the other way the word is primarily used is to clean something. To wipe something clean. To scrub something clean. To purge something of its dirtiness, to wash the dirt and the stain of your sin away. So this entire ritual, it's not about punishment. It's about cleaning. You see, the death of the animal represents the death of your sin and the death of its stain and its pollution. The giving of the animal represents the giving of yourself to God. The burning of the animal represents the purging and cleaning of yourself for God. You see, the animal doesn't vicariously represent your punishment. The animal vicariously represents your cleansing. That's important. Here's the second point. God doesn't need the sacrifice. We do. The sacrifice wasn't for God's benefit. It was for our benefit. In the Old Testament, God doesn't need bulls. He doesn't need goats. He doesn't need blood. Listen to these words. This is Psalm 50, starting in verse 9. This is God directly talking about all the sacrifices Israel would offer. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You see, sacrifices weren't for God, as if he was hungry and he needed to be fed or he needed to be appeased and blood sacrifice was the only way to do it, right? As if there were some rules in the universe that God was bound to. And the rules said, sin can only be taken away when you offer the blood of bulls and goats. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says this, chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God doesn't need the blood. In fact... 
There are times when the Israelites offer sacrifices and they follow all the rules perfectly and God looks into their hearts and he sees that they don't mean any of it. They don't really care about his laws. They don't care about other people. They're going to go out and treat other people horribly right after they offer the sacrifice. And so they don't even really care about him. And you know what this is equivalent to? This is like the guy who's cheated on his wife three times. And he does it a fourth time. And he shows up at the door with flowers. And he says, hey, honey, um, here are my flowers. Do you forgive me for cheating on you a fourth time? As if the flowers have some magical property to somehow erase his horrible deed. And what do you think she would do? She's going to throw the flowers back in his face and she's going to throw them out of the house because he doesn't really mean it. Because nothing has changed. Because his apology isn't genuine. It's hollow. He's not actually sorry. And so the flowers are meaningless. Which is why God will say to Israel in those kinds of circumstances, I couldn't care less about your sacrifices right now. I don't want your songs, I don't want your prayers, I don't want your worship services, I don't want your sacrifices, and I don't want your rituals because they are an offense to me right now. You see, the sacrifice was never about meeting some obligation that God required. It was about communicating and expressing something for our sake, which leads To the last point, number three, sacrifice was a tangible expression of five things. Confession, contrition, repentance, reparation, and restoration. When you brought a sacrifice, you're confessing what you've done, right? You're showing remorse and contrition, Confession, contrition. You're turning to God and you're committing to a new way of life. That's what repentance is. You offer reparation or restitution if that's required. And then you experience cleansing, forgiveness, restoration. And in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was a physical, tangible ritual that gave expression to all of those things. Look, it's one thing to say you're sorry and to mean it. And that's really important. But when you buy flowers and you hand them over and you look her in the eye and you say, I stopped by to get these for you so that I could take a few minutes to tell you why I'm so sorry and what these mean. Man, that's what relationships are built on. That's how restoration happens. Rituals can be so significant because they can embody what we feel and our apology and our sorrow and our turning and our grieving and our desire to be clean. Think about a community that says we need to deal with racism and we need to deal with the stain that it has left. And it's not enough to just talk about it and to say we're sorry. I mean, that's important. We need to start there. But we also need some symbols. We need some rituals. We need something collective that we can do, that we can take part in, something that will symbolically and imaginatively ritualize our sorrow and express our desire to forge a new way forward. Do you see the power these rituals, these gifts played 
and the life of ancient Israelites? So here's the final question for you today. And I know this is a bit long. So I want you to think about this one as you go. It's for you as an individual. What sin, what stain do you need to bring to God today? And remember, he's not mad at you. He's not standing on the other side of a canyon. He's on your side saying, how can we deal with this together? He's not mad at you. He's waiting for you so that he can clean you, so that he can forgive you, so that he can restore you. What do you need to bring to him today? Let me pray for all of us. Lord God, help us, give us the courage when we realize our wrongdoing, when our consciences tell us that we need to be cleaned, that we need to be made whole, when the consequences catch up with us, give us the courage to come to you to know that you welcome us with open arms, to know that you're the Father who loves us and longs for us to be home. And God, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we see the ultimate expression of your love, the ultimate expression of your grace and your mercy, the sacrifice that you made on our behalf in order to wash away the stain of our sin. We see that in the cross. We see that in the blood of Jesus. We see that in his death for us. And so God, for those of us who have been following you for a long time, may we even today come back to that grace. Show our gratitude. Ask for your mercy. And experience your forgiveness. And maybe for those of us who are here or who are listening who are still wondering what that's like, who are still seeking that out, who are longing for that kind of wholeness, that kind of cleansing, that kind of forgiveness. God, would you help them to find that in you today? Would you help them to come to you to confess, to admit, and to do whatever it takes to ask for your mercy and for your grace? We pray all of this in your name. Amen.